Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and welcome to this episode of MedHeads. And today we're chatting with Andrew Rees. Hello, Andrew. Hello there, Fergal. So I thought we'd talk a little bit more today about you know human needs as as constructed by Max Neef. And in a previous episode, you gave me a, a case vignette. So I'm going to give you a case vignette first. So I have a case of a gentleman who's uh, who's gay. He's uh, he's in a same-sex relationship, a de facto relationship. And he was admitted to a district general hospital with acute liver failure and a hepatic encephalopathy. And this was attributed to long-standing alcohol use disorder. And he was discharged and told to basically get help for his alcohol use disorder. And ultimately, he's ended up under my care. And it transpires that he denies, since, since his discharge, he denies any use, any use of alcohol, but acknowledges that, he's, that he, he needs to stay on his benzodiazepines that were initially prescribed to him by his psychiatrist a number of years ago and that he's continued till today to use and to need. So he needs at least 10 milligrams of diazepam a day. Whilst he was in hospital and near death, his de facto partner managed to for some, uh, by some mechanism, take control of this patient's bank accounts. And the patient has come out of hospital having survived a near, a near fatal complication to find that he's not in control of his bank accounts, he's not in control of the, the farmland that he runs, and he's also got, um, you know, he, he, he lives on acreage, he's got, um, he, he keeps horses, he, he's an ex-model, and um, now his parents and his de facto relationship partner are fighting over control over his bank accounts. He then also has told me that, or alludes to the fact that he feels that he's being abused by his de facto uh, partner who is potentially stealing his medication, in particular his painkillers that he's using for his chronic back pain and his benzodiazepines. One of the local pharmacists has also suggested that he is uh, worried about the fact that the patient may be misusing horse tranquilizers uh, because the patient's appearing drug affected with um, presenting to the pharmacy with multiple prescriptions for uh, veterinary medicines, which are allegedly needed for his, his horses. So that's the the case that I've been managing or dealing with recently, and I was wondering how you would analyze that through your interpretive lens. Well, certainly there are a number of uh, human needs that don't seem to be met there, and I think that the end result of that would be phenomena such as uh, chronic anxiety, and from that you're very likely to get uh, depressive illness as well. So this uh, poor man is really, I suspect, struggling with a lot of things. The kinds of issues in this world, um, sustenance seems to be threatened. Um, the thought that uh, might not be able to get a meal, um, uh, shelter, you know, protection, 
not being able to get into one's own home, that would be very difficult. Um, just the underlying illness is going to make it potentially difficult for uh, this chap to engage in anything purposeful. It's not impossible, of course, but uh, it would make it more difficult. Um, I'm not so sure at the moment that uh, the aspect of uh, understanding or wisdom comes into this, but it, it may fall out as we go through things. Um, nor creativity, I suspect. Um, that this is, man's position in life, uh, again, uh, was once a model, uh, had a certain status, one would think, and uh, probably felt they were quite well thought of in their uh, chosen craft uh, and that's perhaps gone by the by. Um, oh, well, affection. Um, it doesn't sound like there's a good deal of uh, affection between them and their partner. Uh, perhaps their parents' motivation is uh, more aimed to their welfare, but we don't know the details of that yet. Uh, um, and I'm just... Uh, I think we've pretty well covered everything. The other last one I think is transcendence, which is perhaps part of uh, identity legacy, the idea that one might hand something on um, to uh, coming generations. I'm not sure that that fits at the moment, but again, that might uh, come to the fore as we discuss the case. Mm. So they would be some thoughts to start with. For me, this patient uh, has had a significant identity crisis. He nearly died. He was admitted to the intensive care unit in, in, uh, in organ failure. That must have a, an incredible effect upon people's outlook in life. You know, the fact is they, you know, a near mortal illness. How, how do you reckon that that changes you in terms of how you look upon life? Well, it, it can. I think it can swing either way, can't it? Uh, some people use it as a as a springing off point. Uh, they realise that uh, life is short and that they ought to perhaps be committing their themselves to greater things. Uh, for other people, it, they're just struck by uh, the fear of their own demise. They, they recognise that life is so short, and and they might withdraw into themselves. So there's uh, any number of responses. And then, of course, we see people who go through near-fatal or illnesses or, or you know, significant illnesses who also suffer from comorbid uh, substance use. And others are surprised that despite having engaged or suffered from a near-fatal illness, they haven't changed their ways. Yet, yet it's important mm. to acknowledge that continued use of a substance despite harms is actually one of the diagnostic criteria for... Uh, substance use disorder. So for me, you know, on the one hand, this patient, he has, at least he says that he stopped drinking, but he continues to be dependent on benzodiazepines and he continues to be possibly misusing opioids, although to a, to a lesser degree. So he's, he's absolutely unwilling to acknowledge the possibility of him having a dependency. He feels that he needs to use his benzodiazepines to manage his ongoing anxiety, which is as a result of his current psychosocial stressors. So I've told him that, you know, in my opinion, benzodiazepines, 
beyond four weeks are really only treating an ongoing benzodiazepine dependency. They're not, they're not treating an, an underlying illness. But he's reverted back to saying things like, oh, well, this is prescribed by my psychiatrist, therefore you cannot touch it, or, you know, my psych psychiatrist is going to disagree with you, and, you know, I'm going to see my psychiatrist, and he's going to sort things out. How does that fit in with this lens of human need? Well, I, I think meeting fundamental human needs is an important starting point. Often I, I use it as a means of distilling what is it that's irritating the soul? Um, mm. What is it that's needling this person? What thing is unmet in their life? This is, I suppose, I suppose in many ways, it's sort of an idea of treating a kind of chronic pain, whether it's physical pain or, or emotional pain. Um, looking at uh, what kind of experience is this person feeling a need to avoid, you know, not being pre prepared to confront uh, certain discomforts uh, and dealing with those in a rational way. So looking at the human needs is not an end in itself. It's a starting point. It opens the door to discussions. Sometimes people say, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why I've got this problem. Um, and then when it comes to the substances, often it's self-medication. Um, the, the person has these needs that are not being met. They have this pain, however it uh, presents itself, and uh, they're seeking release. And so they take a substance. I don't know about you, but in my clinical practice, I get more problems with people stuck on benzodiazepines than I do with opioids or alcohol. I mm. don't know what, what power do benzodiazepines have on people that that is the one drug that they feel that they cannot do without in the face of all of their suffering, you know. And and then, what what do you think? What's what's your experience of that? It's certainly a very long, slow process to wean patients off, mm. um, and, and some are highly resistant to that. Uh, resistance sounds like a bit of a pejorative sort of word, so I, I try and minimize the force of that in the sense that I'm not trying to blame them. It is very difficult for them to move away from their benzodiazepines, I think is how I'd express it. Um, and sometimes they move down only half a milligram at a time and over two or three or four weeks and then they hold there for a while and then they nudge down a little further. But the only thing I find useful is so long as they're not pushing their doses up, giving them a little bit more control and letting them drive a bit and then just using um, motivational interviewing and um, to some extent uh, sort of an acceptance and commitment type framework to, to see them move towards that point where they no longer need them. Can you explain that a little bit more? What, what do you mean by acceptance and commitment therapy in the context of benzodiazepine weaning, say, for instance, for an anxiety disorder? Well, one of the things about acceptance and commitment therapy, it uses uh, as a sort of starting off point with the patient 
Um, creative helplessness. Uh, what's meant there is examining with the patient all of the things that they've been doing, how they've been trying to uh, overcome this problem that they've had by, it might be taking benzodiazepines, it might be putting affirmations around their mirror in the bathroom. Um, it could be all sorts of things, but all the same, they're putting a lot of resources and energy into getting pretty much nowhere. And so we look at that and get them to recognize that despite all of these things, it's just not any better. Would they like to try something different? And then would they be prepared to make that commitment to confront the these uncomfortable thoughts and feelings? And, uh, uh, and of course, with that, then the, the benzodiazepines can come into the into the picture. Well, you know, we're using that to numb uh, these these thought these feelings these anxious thoughts and perhaps if we didn't take that we would be able to deal with them more directly. And I suppose that's one of the reasons why benzodiazepines have such power over people because they do numb our pain they give us an immediate sticking plaster, but they don't create healing. They're not like a proper bandage. You know, mm. when you apply a bandage to a wound, yes, you stabilize the wound, it doesn't hurt as much, and then if you leave it for long enough, then the, the wound underneath heals. But with benzodiazepines, the wound underneath the plaster does not heal, does it? No. No. So is that one of the reasons why you think that people are just wedded to their benzodiazepines? And if so, how can we, how can we help people realize that that's not the case? Um, sometimes it remains very fraught, I think. I have to concede that, it is, as you say, it's very difficult once somebody's mm. started on benzodiazepines to persuade them that it's not the medicine for them. Uh, occasionally it's kind of accidental. Um, a, a patient who uh, was uh, seeing me couldn't get her medicines uh, for one reason or other didn't want to go and see another doctor, ran out, had a few days without and discovered that life was pretty good. Um, I, I'm not recommending that as a course of treatment, by the way, but sometimes it's just sheer serendipity that uh, lets people see uh, that. Sometimes it's sharing a little bit of education. One of the things I, I always come from is uh, the, the, the coaching approach rather than the um, battling it out kind of approach with the patient. Can you, can you give us a little bit more on that then? What is the coaching approach? Well, it's fairly standard, I think, that, unfortunately, that uh, therapists, practitioners and so on, will they know that what the patient's doing is bad for their health, so they just tell them. Um, I find it more useful to find out what it is the patient needs, what do they hope, that they might gain from any kind of therapy um, and then uh, come round to their side to be a coach to them. And so uh, they might say, well, doctor, I, I really need these medicines. I have to have them to be able to cope. Um, mm. uh, okay, I, I understand that's pretty important to you to be able to get uh, your medicines to be able to cope. But 
could I just share a little fact or two with you about the effect of these medicines and their eventual effects on your ab ability to be able to cope? And you know, then we'll start to talk about that. We get their permission to share that and talk about the fact that if you're taking these medicines, then it may well be that you're not able to engage in the thought processes that will allow you to actually completely extinguish the worries um, mm. that that beset you. And I suppose, you know, we're talking about need, and this goes back to the main theme of our talk. You know, why do we feel, or why do patients feel they need to take benzodiazepines? What what need is being satisfied or being met by the benzodiazepines? And if I was to think about the construct, I would be thinking about, you know, rest. You know, this. I, I think benzodiazepines provide a useful escape from pain and they allow people to rest psychologically. But, you know, it's not a good, it's not a proper rest. There's no restoration. It's merely, I suppose, the absence of pain. But it comes with a cost. What, what would you say to that? Well, I, I can think of other examples of these kinds of medicines and needs that people think that they achieve. Uh, it's not mm. uncommon for me to hear from patients that uh, they have to take them to keep their blood pressure under control. Yeah. They've been told that they're so worried they have to take uh, at least um, an eight of alprazolam every time they get worried. Uh, and that's not an exaggeration. Um, mm. uh, and just be just to keep their blood pressure down. So it's sort of one of protection, I, I think, by the way, that that's quite right. outrageous treatment and, and mm. that uh, previous GP had retired um, mm. and apparently all of the notes had mysteriously disappeared. <laughs> right, so yes, for some, for some it may represent protection, for others it may mm. represent rest. For others, it, I suppose it may also represent creativity because it allows them, or, or at least patients feel that they, are, they can be facilitated to work to be creative, to write, to engage, and that's that's another need in itself, isn't it? But all mm. of these, all of these needs might be met in the short term, but in the long term, benzodiazepines, I think, they come with a price that ultimately erodes their value. Mm. What do you think about, mm. about that? Well, certainly things like falls in the elderly, yeah. um, loss of. Uh, motor control and so on. Uh, as I understand it, uh, when you lose that control, certain mm. individuals certainly struggle with actually even cons re uh, realizing that they've lost the capacity to control their limbs, mm. those kinds of things. Yeah, so the, yeah. there's a number of poor consequences, but certainly even at fairly modest doses, um, helping patients with um, other psychosocial in interventions is really hindered by things like benzodiazepines and uh, gabapentinoids, I think, can also have an effect. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Now, this patient also has issues with his relationship with his parents and his relationship with his de facto partner who seems to be abusing him financially and also physically and emotionally. 
it's it's not an uncommon scenario that we see patients who are substance dependent who are actually the victims of trauma and abuse well that's right uh, I suppose the idea of mother's little helper the the a woman, for example, has been subjected to uh, abuse, domestic abuse, who just simply takes pharmaceuticals so that she might forget and uh, not feel the pain. And perhaps in this man's case, he may well feel he's got no functional place to turn to. He might well be alienated from his family. Some families uh, can be a bit like that with people who are not in sort of standardised uh, heterosexual relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I suppose the, the other issue is, you know, domestic violence. I mean, we all assume that domestic violence is perpetrated by a man on a woman, but we have to acknowledge that domestic violence comes in all shapes and sizes. And certainly in uh, same-sex relationships, it's there. You know, people are not immune to to these issues. And you know, to what extent is it the right thing to say? Oh, you must leave your partner. I mean, it's I've heard that that's perhaps sometimes the wrong advice. Yes, well, that may be. They may have other attachments that they would be leaving behind. This man has his horses. Will he be lo le losing contact with his beloved animals? Uh, there may be other important assets, maybe those things which have no particular monetary value but are deeply significant to him that are inside that household. Uh, there could be all sorts of things, all, all sorts of other concerns and worries that uh, this my, man might have if he decides to leave. Yeah, yeah. So once again, we have an example of a case where it's just so complex and there's no one size fits all. And there are so many threads to weave into the story of, of, the, uh, of the patient's suffering and also potentially the solution. And if we're looking at solutions, how would you summarize the potential solutions for this patient? Well, the solutions really lie within the patient. Um, I, I don't feel that it's ever my role to tell a patient how to solve their life problems. Uh, mm. I've not had the opportunity of speaking to this man. So mm. uh, if I was to talk to him, perhaps he would uh, tell me that he has a vision of a better life uh, for himself, mm. uh, whether that's without his partner or, or with his partner. But he, he might have a vision for himself of, of his... Uh, better life and uh, then we would discuss what will that life look like and uh, what what's happening now that seems to be headed in that direction and what small changes might be made to get you to the point where uh, you actually get to have that life that you dream of. Um, my approach here is really it's about having a conversation with the patient um, and what's important to that patient, oh, I, I don't actually know. I mean, is, is what's important to that patient that they don't take substances or is there something else in their life? Do they want to get back into modeling? Do they want to start something new? Do they, I don't know, want to start an art mm. gallery? 
Who knows? Well, that's that a very, might be their dream. Uh, yeah. I, we haven't asked them. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. To what extent do you have dreams? To what extent are your substances enabling your dreams, or and or to what extent are your substances withholding you from achieving your dreams? Because you talk about you know the coaching element. You know, I'm very much aware when I'm treating this patient that his, <clears throat> that his use of benzodiazepines is 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 wrong. It's bad. It's inappropriate. It's bad prescribing, and he has to get off it. But he's telling me that his use of benzodiazepines is keeping him on an even keel. So you know it, it's. I, you know, when I reflect back on my on my interactions with him so far, I have not yet asked him what does he want in life, where do his dreams take him, because mm. I haven't had that conversation. I'm therefore not able to tell him that his his current medication regime is actually impeding him reaching those dreams. Well, he might work that out himself. Yeah. Yeah. Let's imagine for a minute, oh, completely to fictionalise this man's existence from henceforth, uh, let's say he does want to start an art gallery and you say, well, what's it going to look like? And how you, what's your first clue that your, that your life has changed, you know, that the miracle has happened? And he will say, well, well I want to paint some of those pictures myself and how will that happen? And, well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get some canvases and I'm going to get, I love acrylics. I'm going to do rich colours and acrylics. He might get quite excited about that. And then he might come back to you later and say, all of these drugs are blunting my ability to express myself. I want to get off them. All right, then let's see what I can do to help you. Yeah. Yeah. So I suppose one way of looking at it is to unlock the desire in the patient to meet their own needs, their creative needs, and to link in medication safety with those desires. But, mm. you know, a lot of my colleagues will ask me, well, what do we do in the meantime? You know, how do we manage their safety in the meantime? What do you say to that? Well, we, I think in terms of giving advice, one of the most important elements I feel is seeking the patient's permission to share uh, that little bit of advice. You know, look, it looks like you'll be on this for a little while. I'd like to just share with you what I would consider to be safe guidelines for use of these mm. substances. Um, and most people will uh, give permission and take your advice. Uh, like all humans, if somebody directly advises me, um, I'm not very good at listening. But uh, <laughs> I think, that, you know, but I, I think that that is the case. You know, it, it offends against uh, that human need for that's probably where the wisdom part comes in. That, it, that every human needs to feel that he or she is uh, the author of their own life story and that they have a degree of wisdom. They, this man is the expert in his existence. He, he's the expert in his life. Uh, and so being humble enough to accept that he does know that at the same time as as a as a friendly practitioner just mentioning a few things that would make one worried um, and then just uh, you know setting down those clear safety boundaries but without being confrontational that's part of that coaching approach i think yeah 
Andrew, I think we've run out of time far too quickly, but I really appreciate your take on this very difficult case and thank you for your pearls of wisdom as usual. And I really do hope we can speak again very soon. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for today's show. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong. We'll see you next time. Thank you.